and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and uh, Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out the true story behind the defenestration of Prague. Um, today's episode is kind of a special hybrid. Uh, earlier this week, we did a special Dispatch Live event with Chris Wallace, host of Fox News Sunday, about his book, Countdown, 1945, the extraordinary story of the atomic bomb and the 116 days that changed the world. And uh, this was one of our special Dispatch Live events. We're going to do more and more of this kind of thing. If you sign up to be a member, you could have watched it live. Um, we decided for this one that we're actually going to include the Q&A session. But in future events, sometimes we will um, keep that for members only. Uh, we just, you know, I, partly I wanted to just do right by Chris and... Um, um, help him with the book, and we thought it was an interesting conversation, and it was a worthwhile, um, you know, sort of a, a moose-bouche for people interested in signing up for things like this. Uh, so uh, this is a new intro that I'm recording afterwards uh, for the podcast, for the audio, and today this special episode of The Remnant is brought to you by our friends at Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving and from our friends at Gabby, A Better Way to Find Insurance. More about both of them in a little bit. And let's just get on with the conversation. So I, I, up front, I just want to say, don't be nervous. I know this is a live thing, and you don't have a lot of experience with this sort of stuff, but um, I'll hold your hand through this. So it's, uh, it'll be I, I, okay. Let me just say, I'm much more comfortable asking the questions and answering them, but I, you promised to treat me gently, so. I did go. indeed, and and for for viewers that don't, know, I don't want to, I don't want to age Chris because he is a is a is a young man for any age, but he has been doing live television for a very long time. He's hosted more than one Sunday show. Um, I if 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 as the pilot of this thing, I have a heart attack. He could probably just grab the wheel and take it without me. So um, first of all, let me say uh, Countdown, I was skeptical, just going to be honest, because you know you hadn't written a book before and it was an interesting concept. And uh, it actually legitimately, I think you succeeded and I don't, I'm not a flatterer, but you set out to write a kind of a thriller and it, it reads like a thriller. It's a, it's a beach reading kind of read, but with a lot of historical substance to it, which is a harder thing to pull off than a lot of people may suspect. So congratulations on that. It's actually a great read. Well, thank you. And that, that's exactly what I wanted. Let me just talk quickly about process. Um, and uh, see, I'm going to start to take this over. <laughs> um, so I had this concept for a while that I wanted to do a historical thriller, a page turner. I didn't want to write some dusty tome that nobody reads. I wanted to write a, a book that people would enjoy. And, and you say a beach read, I, I think some people would be insulted by that. I, I, it's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be, you know, this is, you're in the airport and you look around and oh, that looks good, I'll buy that and you, and you read it on the plane. Um, and my favorite review was one I got from the Washington Post where somebody said, uh, I know what happened in 1945. <laughs> But this reads like a thriller, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the countdown conceit, it works a little bit like the giant clock in the TV show 24, you know, that just Kong. It, it, it moves it along and cuts it up really nicely into digestible bits. It's, it's, well, I would, and also, what I, you know, the point is, you know, so much of, of history is written, well, we know what happened, here's why it happened, or whatever. But in fact, when it was happening, they didn't know what right. was going to happen. And they're faced with tremendous uncertainty and tremendous tension and the stakes of the, the decision. And it's not just Truman at the White House, it's the scientists at Los Alamos who don't know whether or not uh, the, the gadget, as they call it, is going to work. It's the, it's the flight crew at Tinian Island who doesn't know when they drop the bomb over Hiroshima, whether the aftershocks are going to knock them right out of the sky. So, I mean, it's a naturally thrilling subject if you put reader 
take them along for the ride in, at each step along the way. Yeah. No, I, I, again, I think it really works. What, what gave you the idea to settle on this as a topic? Well, I'm probably going to lose a lot of uh, your, your listeners and viewers right now with this story. Uh, true story. I, I kept having this, I know what I want to do, and I wanted to find some key moment in history and tell it this way, but I couldn't figure out the key moment. And in February of 2019, uh, uh, several of TV anchors were invited over to Nancy Pelosi's hideaway on the House side of the Capitol the day that Donald Trump was going to deliver his State of the Union speech for a pre-bottle, which I'm sure a lot of you know, but for those who don't, you know, it's that uniquely Washington thing where somebody's going to tell you everything about somebody else's speech <laughs> beforehand, why it, why it stings, why it's all wrong, but they haven't heard the speech. So we're sitting in this room and she says, we're in the Board of Education. Uh, having covered the House and being a student of history, I was very excited. I have to say my colleagues, I don't think they had a clue what she was talking about. Yeah, you explain what the Board of Education yeah, The Board is, of yeah. Education was Sam Rayburn's hideaway on the House side. Uh, it's on the ground floor uh, on the House side. And I had covered the House for about a year and a half when I first came to Washington in the late 70s. I'd never been there. Uh, and this is the room that Rayburn would invite his cronies after hours to come in to gossip, to, to plot strategies, and then to give marching orders, and to, as they called it, strike one for liberty, which was to have a bourbon and branch water. Yeah. And she said it was in this room at the other end of the table where she was sitting that Harry Truman, who was then vice president in 1945, uh, he was a regular, uh, and he used to come and sit there, and she said that he... She got it slightly wrong. She said, <laughs> this is the room that Truman makes the phone call to the White House and finds out that Roosevelt is dead and that he now has ascended from vice president to president. And she said he hung up the phone and he said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson. Well, that part of it was true. And when I heard that, I went, I got it. Yeah. And I didn't know, but it turns out it's 116 days from the day that Truman it is it, what happens really is that he's told by Rayburn, the White House is looking for you. He calls, he talks to Steve Early, who is Roosevelt's longtime secretary, who says, get to the White House as quickly and quietly as you can. And he hangs up the phone and says, Jesus Christ and General Jackson. And when he gets to the White House, thinking that somehow Roosevelt has come back from Warm Springs and wants to talk to him. And he's pretty excited and nervous about it because he'd been vice president for 82 days. And he had met in private with Roosevelt twice in the 82 days. So this is a big deal. When he gets to the White House, he's ushered up to the family quarters and Mrs. Roosevelt comes out dressed in black and says, Harry, the president is dead. And, um, and just quickly to get you through the day one, I'm not going to get you through <laughs> all 16 days, but it just, this is, gives you a sense because I didn't know any of this. I just knew I wanted to tell the story. And it just kept getting richer and more and more interesting with details that you never would have dreamt up if you were writing a Hollywood script. She says, Harry, the president's dead. He says, Mrs. Roosevelt, is there anything I can do to help you? And she says, Harry, is there anything we can do to help you? Because you're the one in trouble now. So in any case, he's sworn in. And there's some interesting things about that. After he's sworn in, Henry Stimson, the 77-year-old Secretary of War, says, Mr. President, I need to take, uh, talk to you. They go into a, a, a private room. And Stimson says, uh, Mr. President, I need to tell you about an immense project to create the most powerful weapon in history. And that is literally the first inkling that Truman had at all of the existence of the Manhattan Project to build the atom bomb, even though he'd been vice president for 82 days. He didn't know anything about it. And that's the end of day one. Yeah, so uh, two things about that. One very small, one considerably larger. The small thing, the little piece I liked about that, about the swearing in, was that, was it Justice Harlan? Harlan Stone. Harlan Stone, that's right. He, yes. um, Chief Justice. Chief Justice. He ad-libbed what the S and Harry S. Truman stood for. And one of my favorite pieces of political trivia is that, and editorial trivia, is that there's no period after the S and Harry S. Truman, because S doesn't stand for anything. And so when I said when I saw that you was sworn in as Harry Ship or something. Ship, which is a, a family, his father's family name. Yeah. Uh, Ship. And he says, Do you Harry Ship Truman? And uh, and and Truman corrects him and says, I Harry S. Truman. 
but oh, I, I keep raising my hand, which is wrong. <laughs> Another part of the story, which is so great, which is he does the oath and he thinks he's done. And uh, suddenly Chief Justice Stone says, no, no, no we got to do it again. Why? Because he didn't raise his hand. The first time he does it, he's holding the Bible in his left right. hand and he puts his right hand on top of the Bible. And when he's done, the Chief Justice says, no, no, we got to do it again. So you got to raise your right hand. And he, and he do it the second time with his hand raised and the S standing for nothing. So, I mean, you're very clear about it, that FDR was kind of a jerk towards Truman as a vice president, right? Uh, keeps him out of the loop. I don't say he was a jerk. I just say he didn't pay any attention to him. Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. But I, 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 that is my interpretation of it. Okay. But uh, um, you're, I should say you're very matter of fact about how he didn't, give much consideration to Harry Truman, or really to any of his vice presidents. Um, I would argue, if you want to go on the tangent, we can, that we were very lucky that he dumped his previous vice president because things could have been very, very bad if Wallace had been in charge. Um, Henry but, Wallace, not Chris Wallace. Let's make that's right, yeah, that's right. Um, but don't you think, I mean, it's kind of grotesquely irresponsible for, to be, Forget just the atomic building the atomic bomb, but to fighting World War II and not have as an ailing old man not loop in your vice president on anything. I mean, it's kind of shocking when you think about it. Well, yeah, it is, and I think you're you're you are right that it, he should have, he should have done it. The interesting thing is, you talk about how he made the right decision to get Henry Wallace off the ticket. He didn't have anything to do with getting Henry Wallace off the ticket. It was the Democratic Party brokers right. who decided that Henry Wallace was way too far to the left and had grave doubts, the party brokers did, that uh, Truman, or rather Roosevelt, was not going to outlive, survive a fourth term. Um, you know, that he, was, that he just wasn't going to make it till 1949. And so they were the ones who went through it. It's a part of the book the process of figuring out, well, who should replace Wallace on the ticket? And they ended up going through a variety of names, Jimmy Byrne, uh, Alvin Barkley, a bunch of, of names Wallace wanted to run. And they finally decide on Truman because they decide that he is the one who will do the last least damage to the right. ticket. And in fact, Roosevelt has almost nothing to do with it and says in 44, when they're going to hold the convention in Chicago, he, he barely knows Truman, and, and it's the party elders who basically go to him and say, it's Truman, and Truman doesn't want it and, and resists. And in fact, he was there to uh, give the nominating speech for Jimmy Byrne, and the Democratic Party chairs, uh, they, they arrange a phone call. Truman is in San Diego, and they bring Truman, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Roosevelt is in San Diego, and they bring Truman to the hotel room in Chicago, and they staged this phone call where uh, Truman can overhear, where he's saying, have you convinced that damn uh, fool senator to, to join the ticket? And uh, they say, no, he's, you know, he's a Missouri, Missouri mule. And uh, finally, they, they put, you know, it's all set up. They have Roosevelt get on the phone with Truman and say, if you're not going to listen to your commander in chief in the middle of a war and you're going to bring the party down. And so Truman, and I think very reluctantly, agrees to be on the ticket in the first place, and then is promptly forgotten by Roosevelt. Had nothing to do with him uh, for the, during the campaign or during the first 82 days of his vice presidency. Yeah, it's just for listeners or viewers who don't appreciate the point, you know, there's this funny thing among certain kinds of social historians, progressive historians that want to say that, um, uh, you know, that individual leaders don't really matter and it's larger social forces and all these kinds of things. And there's some places where I think that's probably true, but Henry Wallace, he was not a Russian asset or a Russian spy, but he was an incredibly naive guy about the Soviet Union who surrounded himself with a bunch of people who did turn out to be Russian assets and Russian spies years later, particularly when he runs in 48 on his own. And he was a harsh, harsh critic of the Marshall Plan, harsh critic of the Cold War, wanted to give Stalin his defensible borders in Eastern Europe. And the idea that history wouldn't have played out 
wildly differently if you had a President Wallace instead of a President Truman, just seems sort of preposterous to me. I mean, that was one of these, you know, dogs that didn't bark, but if it had barked, it would have been a completely different world in a lot of ways. No, there are only two points I'd make. One, we were incredibly lucky, and, and you know, they didn't really pick Truman for the right reasons. I mean, there wasn't a discussion, well, who can fill or try to fill Roosevelt's shoes? Who's the best equipped Democrat? Uh, you know, probably from the Senate in those days uh, to to replace Roosevelt if if the unfor you know if the un uh, you know the unthinkable should happen. The other thing is that even after Roosevelt dumps Wallace, he then keeps in in his cabinet in the fourth term as right. the Secretary of Commerce. So he's a member of the Truman cabinet when Truman ascends to the presidency on April twelfth. Um, all right, so let's get. Let's get the, the story moving past day one. <laughs> um, uh, one my favorite character, uh, well, I'm torn. I don't think you, you probably couldn't possibly know this about me, but uh, my grandfather on my mom's side actually went to Harvard with Oppenheimer and was a physicist for the Navy and was involved in some of this stuff. He wasn't technically on the Manhattan Project, but he did some of the scout work for the underwater testing and he invented the precursor of sonar. So I'm sort of interested in Oppenheimer for other reasons. But my favorite character is Leslie Groves, because I think he's one of these quintessentially American guys. So why don't you explain who Groves and Oppenheimer are and the relationship between the two of them? The Manhattan Project starts in 1942, Roosevelt. And in fact, back in 39, he'd gotten a letter Roosevelt had from Albert Einstein, and who basically said, you know, I think the Germans... And, and an awful lot of the scientists involved in this were German refugees, mm-hmm. uh, and but there were some who were still in Germany. And he's very concerned that the Germans are going to develop the nuclear bomb, the atom bomb, first. And obviously, they're rightly terrified that Adolf Hitler with an atom bomb is not a good, <laughs> a good combination. So he says to, to Roosevelt, you need to get going on this. But it is not really until 1942 that he does. And then it's only at the urging of Winston Churchill. We, we really got to get serious. A lot of those German scientists, some, many had gone to the United States, but some had gone to Germany. So Churchill's aware of this discussion as well. And they put two men in charge of the Manhattan Project. The, the, the overall commanding operator, it's a military operation, is General Leslie Groves, who his claim to fame up to that point was he was the man who built the Pentagon. And which gives you a sense, this is a guy who can pull off a, a, a big project. And he In did 16 it. months. Yes, I was going to say, a little <laughs> over a year. Um, and, you know, by far the biggest building in the world at that point. And, you know, so this is a guy who can get something done. But obviously, he's not a scientist. He's a bulldozer of a guy. Physically, he was huge. He was six, four or five, 250 pounds. And even though he... Uh, was not, you know, a four-star, he, he would boss around people who outranked him. And, and one of the things, he, a line that we quote in the book is that he says, you know, I know I have an intimidating presence and I use it to my advantage, <laughs> but he's not the guy who's going to build the bomb. Uh, he's the guy that will put the people in place to build the bomb. And they come up with Robert Oppenheimer, who was an absolutely brilliant physicist who's on the West Coast. Uh, and and, and uh, teaches at, at, I think, Berkeley and Caltech both, and goes back and forth from Southern California to Northern California, and some, you know, intellectual scientific groupies follow him back and forth. And he was a wildly brilliant and eccentric man who spoke a bunch of languages. Uh, he, he learned Sanskrit so he could read the uh, Hindu devotional poem, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, in the original Sanskrit. And, I appreciated your dread about trying to actually pronounce it, but you did oh, it well. Well, let me say, you know, I, I read, you know, I had to read the book for the audio book. <laughs> and that was one of those lines as you're coming up to it, you're going, oh, my God. And incidentally, we could do a whole thing on just reading uh, a 280-page book. That's, a, that's an interesting challenge, I, I must say. It is. The guy who I did it with, the, the key is to get the right director to kind of see you through it both, both uh, uh, verbally and emotionally. But in any case, he takes over the project. And, and that 
relationship between the two of them was really the key to the success of the project because you've got this military guy, Groves, who's a bulldozer, and then you've got, uh, but he's not, most of the time he's not in Los Alamos. And in fact, Los Alamos out in the, New Mexico in a very deserted part of New, uh, New Mexico was a place that, that uh, Oppenheimer had grown up. So he was the one who came up with the idea. Uh, and, and, but he's assembling this amazing group of mostly young scientists. It wasn't a bunch of graybirds. It was a lot of scientists in their 20s and 30s. And they keep bucking out at the kind of military discipline and the deadlines that Marshall is setting. And, and it was Oppenheimer's job to kind of manage the relationship between the military on the one hand and the scientists who, who Groves considered to be terrible prima donnas on the other, and uh, and you know, in the meantime, to completely revolutionize uh, technology and develop the first atom bomb. Yeah, there's a um, there's a great scene, just a paragraph in Paul Johnson's Modern Times, where he's trying to explain what Leslie Groves was like, and he says, a typical moment was when and I'm doing this from memory, but he says, when he called the some official at the Treasury and said. They're going to need thousands of pounds or tons of silver to make the wires for the Manhattan Project. And the Treasury official responds, sir, we do not talk about tons of silver. We deal in the Troy ounce. <laughs> he says, no, we're going to do it my way. And he gets these just piles and piles of silver. Um, and if we were doing a different conversation, I would kind of ask, how, why is it that America back then could do could build the Pentagon in 16 months or 15 months, whatever it was, and get these kinds of things done. And we don't seem able to do that sort of thing anymore. But um, um, well, can I, let me just say one thing in that regard. And it, uh -huh. it is, I don't know the answer to the question, so I'm glad you're not asking me. But one of the joys of researching this book and writing this book was how different 1945 is from 2020. And, and just in terms of the sense of unity in the country and the sense that everybody was pulling together in the same direction and coming together in common cause. The fact was that by the end, 125,000 people were involved in the Manhattan Project from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to Los Alamos, to Hanford, Washington, to Wendover, Utah, doing involved in uranium enrichment and research and development of the bomb and the the 509th Composite Group, which was going to drop the bomb, and the story never leaked. So that yeah. uh, that when uh, Truman becomes president, he doesn't know about it, and he's told about it by Henry Stimson. And you know, I I, I keep thinking today, if you had 125,000 people doing anything, um, you know, a secret project to bake apple pie by day two, there'd be somebody that was tweeting or Facebooking and saying, you know, saying, I'm going to be a whistleblower because this is outrageous. Yeah. This was a, a different mindset. So uh, let's fast forward to the, you know, so the, the, the scientists who are doing this, who are working on this, a big chunk of them weren't actually motivated by defeating Japan, right? I mean, they're, some of them were German Jews and it was, had a lot more to do with the war in Europe and all of that. Um, first of all, how you know? What is your take on on the the? What do you explain sort of the the moral morass that a lot of these scientists were in? When because there's a there's a feeling sometimes when you're reading about the scientists science stuff about it, it feels a little bit like Colonel Nicholson from a Bridge Over the River Kwai, where you know he's you you and I are probably the only people on this. Uh on this podcast who are old enough to know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> well, but that's a fantastic movie, right? And Alec Guinness builds this yes, bridge. Yes, it was in the mid-1950s. <laughs> well, okay, but he builds this bridge in part just to prove that he could do Don't it, tell right? people the ending. <laughs> I won't, I won't, I won't. But so, I mean... But anyway, you, you it's a morally complicated thing. Alec Guinness and Sesu Hayakawa and, and nice. uh, Bill Holden. That's movie. right. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about the, the moral quandary of the scientists, because they weren't all necessarily on the same page. And then let's just let's talk about the actual decision itself. Um, well, I, I, yes, I'm going to jump a little bit out of order to say uh -huh. that when the decision is finally made uh, and, and afterwards, the political people never express any 
second thoughts about it. They, I mean, who knows what they harbor, but Truman was asked about it till the end of his life. And he always said, I'd do it again. All of the people on the flight crew of the Enola Gay that dropped the bomb, none of them ever expressed any second thoughts. The scientists expressed lots of second right. thoughts, and some of them, as you pointed, even first thoughts before the bomb was tested. And incidentally, that's another fantastic fact, that the bomb is tested for the first and only time on July 16th, 21 days, three weeks before it's dropped. They didn't know until 21 days before whether the damn thing would even work. And there were a lot of questions whether it would work. But there was, yes, there was a lot of, uh, of second thoughts and first thoughts about it. Einstein, uh, shortly before he died in the mid-50s, said the one big mistake in his life was encouraging Roosevelt to build the bomb. They, 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 you know, I think they felt responsibility. They created the technology. They were found a way to, uh, I mean, there had been a, a, an atomic reaction in a, in a closed laboratory, but they found a way to make it into a weapon. And they obviously saw how fiercely destructive it was. And, um, and, and there were a lot of grave doubts about it. Some beforehand petitions before it was dropped to Roosevelt and then to Truman from some of the scientists like Leo Szilard mm-hmm. uh, and Frank not to, not to drop it. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, tremendous second thoughts. And one of the other great scenes in the book uh, is, is in October of 45. The bomb is dropped in August of 45. Uh, Oppenheimer goes to meet with Truman in the Oval Office at the White House. And by now, he's just riven with, with, with second thoughts. And he says, Mr. President, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And Truman says, don't worry about it. I'm the one with blood on my hands. I'll, I'll worry about it. And then he basically can't wait to get Oppenheimer out of the Oval Office, after which he turns to his staff and says, I never want this son of a bitch in this room ever again. <laughs> and he, had, he had no patience for this kind of... Uh, kind of doubts. And later on, he meets with Tibbetts, I think several years later. And, and um, you know, they, they basically sit there and uh, Truman says to Tibbetts, well, and uh, Tibbetts says, well, you gave me the order and I followed it. And uh, Truman smacks his hand on the desk in the Oval Office and says, you're damn right I did. So, uh, the military men and the, and the politicians, no second thoughts, the scientists a lot. All right. So but what, what's your view? I mean, I, we, we know the arguments, right, that, that an invasion would have cost more lives um, and certainly more American lives, which I'm not exactly an America firster in the context that it's used today. But I think a commander in chief during a long war has every right to consider the lives of his own troops somewhat greater than he does the lives of enemy troops who have been trying to kill us for a very long time. Um, where do you come down on the decision um, with the benefit of hindsight, particularly the decision to drop the second one? Um, I, I basically come down, I don't, you know, I think it's up to everybody to decide what the morality of it is. I, I, I deal more in the practicality of it. And I don't think that Truman had any other realistic choice. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, maybe everybody doesn't know. I didn't know. But I mean, it wasn't either drop the bomb or do nothing. It's drop the bomb or invade Japan. Right. And in fact, Japan was fighting more fiercely the closer and closer U.S. forces were getting to the Japanese homeland. And and, and I believe, I think the stat is right. I could look, I could look it up in the book, but that 50% of all the casualties in the Pacific happened in the 116 days that Truman was vice president, that the, the, the American casualties were in- exponentially growing. Okinawa, they thought they were going to capture Okinawa in two days. They, it took them three months. They killed 100,000 Japanese, and the 20,000 Japanese left on the island still refused to surrender. Some of them committed suicide. Some of them kept fighting. There were two million Japanese on the homeland, and they had all been trained to resist as well as civilians. So the estimates were that this is the summer of 45. The war is going to go on until uh, the end of 46. 
and that there's going to be a million Japanese casualties and a half a million American casualties. So it's not just that they're going to save American lives. In fact, there would have been a much greater loss of Japanese life if they yeah. had invaded. So, you know, I, I think the idea that Truman or any president would sit there and say, I'm not going to use the bomb. I'm going to invade. It may cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. And at some point, the country and the world is going to find out that I had moral compunctions about using this bomb, which was at my disposal, which might be able to end the war in a snap. I, I don't think any, anybody could have, could have made that decision. And, um, and the interesting thing is, you know, people say, well, they were about ready to surrender. The fact is, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima on August 6th, and there's utter devastation. Uh, tens of thousands of people are killed, many more thousands end up dying later from radiation poisoning. The city is devastated, and the Japanese military government absolutely refuses to surrender. Three days later, on August 9th, they dropped the second bomb on Nagasaki, and the Japanese military government absolutely refuses to surrender. And it's only after a couple of days after the 9th that Emperor Hirohito decides that he's got to take it on himself, and he arranges a radio broadcast to the nation, to Japan, and the vast majority of the Japanese have never heard the voice of their revered divine emperor, and he is the one who says, enough. So, you know, when people say, well, they would have surrendered, we dropped the bomb, and then we dropped the second bomb, and they still didn't surrender. So I guess I come down on it was, it was the, the right decision, although obviously a brutally difficult one. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's sort of morally somewhat cringeworthy to say it was the right decision to drop these things, but I, I, it, I think... And the way you bring the reader along with Truman's decision process, I do think it's very difficult to have come to a different conclusion, except in one regard. And this is something that does bother me. You make mention of it a few times. I've read about it in other places before. There, was, there were some scientists who thought there was a non-trivial chance that it was going to ignite the atmosphere and destroy the planet. And... That seems like worth avoiding. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I mean, it just like was it was this a mostly theoretical thing? Was it one percent chance? Is that, I mean, do you have? I don't know. Well, the answer is they didn't know what percent chance. But I will say that at, they're testing the bomb. It's one of the great scenes in the book. I'm told by my publisher I should keep saying countdown 1945. <laughs> uh, the the, uh, the it's a great scene. July 16th. Uh, Truman wakes up in Potsdam. He's there for the summit uh, meeting where he's going to fill, and interestingly, quite insecure about filling the shoes of Roosevelt and meeting with Stalin and Churchill, largely to discuss post-war Europe and the division of spoils there. Um, but it's also the day, July uh, 16th, that they test the bomb in Alamogordo, which was eight hours, eight time zones behind. And as they're getting ready to test the bomb at 5.30 in the morning in Alamogordo, New Mexico, just completely, uh, you know, empty desert, uh, the scientists are, are kind of doing a March Madness pool about what's going to happen when they hit zero and, and, and push the button to detonate the bomb, which is on a 100-foot steel tower. And some of them, and a sizable number, thought it was going to be a dud. It wasn't going to work at all. And there were some who thought that it would ignite the atmosphere. And then some of them, there was a division. And they were literally betting on this. Was it going to ignite the atmosphere and just destroy New Mexico? Or was it going to take out the entire United States? So uh, I don't know. I mean, I certainly never found what a percentage, because I don't think anybody knew. And right. obviously, the vast majority thought that it was going to just be a big boom, which is what it turned out to be. Uh, but But there was some difference of opinion about it. I mean, there's just a cutting your nose despite your face out aspect of, you know, it could stop the war and it could also extinguish life on the planet and hand it over to the bees. You know, I just, it, it would make me worry a little bit. All right, so. I think the G file could go, it could do it <laughs> right up on this. Giving USA recently reported that Americans increased their charitable giving last year. Are you among the millions of Americans wanting to grow your charitable impact? but recognizing that your time is limited? With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, 
You spend less time on administration and more time having an impact for your principles and values. A donor-advised fund is like your own charitable savings account. With a fund, you can manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who, are, who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that make America great. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join their community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to DonorsTrust.org dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's DonorsTrust.org dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, I've heard you say uh, more than once that one of the things you really loved about uh, diving into this project, which is, again, your first book, um, is that it was possible to finally talk about something other than Donald Trump. Um, I know that feeling well. Uh, and Yes, I've heard you talk, write about your dog. Great yes. Yeah, well, the dogs are apolitical. They, they, they bring this country together. Um, so the what is your just your general take on the state of American politics right now writ large. Do you think, um, look, I know it makes good copy, as people in our line of work say, but um, this doesn't feel like a wonderful time in the history of the country, does it? <laughs> you mean with the pandemic and the economic collapse and the racial uh, tensions at, at, you know, at DEFCON 2? No, it's not. A, it's not. A, 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 Jonah, let me just set your mind at rest. It's not a good time in the country. I thought I was, I thought I was thinking crazy. Thing. I've been in Washington 42 years. I came in 1978 to be uh, a, a, a sort of a junior reporter for NBC News. And, you know, but I started it. it, it, it I, I ended up covering the House That's for about two years. And, you know, things used to get done in Washington. And, you know, they used to be compromise and legislation. I remember William Steiger, a congressman from Michigan and, you know, the capital gains taxes and then Reagan, of course, and uh, the various tax cuts and social security reform and the uh, tax reform and the immigration bill. You can argue sometimes whether it was good or bad legislation, but it was legislation. And, you know, we had problems and we addressed the problems. And I would say, Really, starting after Reagan, I've seen just a steady decline, and this is nothing original, I think everybody else has seen it, where nothing, or, or less and less, gets done until nothing gets done. And um, it, you know, I, it's, it keeps getting worse. You keep thinking, well, a new president's going to come in and it'll get better. And in fact, it keeps getting worse. It was worse under under Clinton than it was under Bush 41, worse under Bush 42, 43 rather than Clinton, Obama, Trump, you know, so that, and I don't know, maybe something has happened late today that I have missed, but, you know, the latest word was they might not even be able to get a policing bill through the Senate when everybody seems to be basically on the same page, but they can't get out of their own way to do it. No, I think I think it's very discouraging and very depressing, and you just sort of wonder how long we can continue to kick all of these cans down the road. It's a lot of cans. I mean, yeah. it's the cans that would be trailing a just married uh, limousine after a wedding, um, and we just we just don't ever address anything. So, uh, you know, one of the one of my big sort of philosophical political science arguments is that a lot of our problems stem from the fact that the parties have gotten weaker, that they can't police their own brands anymore, they can't discipline their own troops, and that politicians, partly as a result, are more interested in being pundits than actually being legislators, that they don't actually want to take charge. And that one of the, the secret surprise villains in all of this, not to put too much on C-SPAN because I love Brian Lamb and I still have a soft spot in my heart, but is there's been too much transparency. And that in the days of the Board of Education, 
where people from different parties could actually talk behind closed doors, maybe even smoke-filled rooms, and negotiate and, and compromise. You could get things done. But when everybody has to be answerable in effect to the digital or cable news equivalent of the masses and the mob, and everyone has to play their part as a rebel rather than actually someone taking responsibility, you get just performative politics rather than actual negotiation and sausage making. Um, do you feel that? I mean, like it's, it's surprising to me how many on all the cable networks, not just Fox, but how many politicians seem that they care more about having a hit on Morning Joe or on Fox and Friends than passing a law or actually doing the thing that they were sent to Washington to do. No, um, it, it, well, I mean, the, the, the policing is a perfect example because it, it seems right now that rather than actually do something about the problems, you can argue what, what the government, the federal government should do because policing seems like a very local function that should be handled much more at the local level, but that people would be perfectly happy to have the issue. It, it, it is, I'm now going to do something probably quite stupid, which is since I'm very much trying to promote Countdown 1945, which incidentally <laughs> was the best-selling hardcover book in America this past week, not Mazel fiction up. or non-fiction. I just want to get that out there. I'm going to actually um, talk about another book, which I think is very interesting. And after you've read Countdown 1945, um, that I, I, I like a lot by Ezra Klein. I know some mm -hmm. of your audience may not like it, but called Why We're, I forget, it's either Why We're Divided, Why We're Polarized. I read it early in, in March, but it's a really, I think, very interesting. And I thought, I, how am I going to get through this? It's a social science book, and that's mm -hmm. not normally what I like. I like to read uh, history or fiction, but it's really very interesting. And it's, it's you're right, but I think it goes much deeper than that. And what he basically, Ezra's point is, is that we have devolved into, it isn't just liberal and conservative, it isn't just Republican and Democrat, that we have become tribes. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and when I say tribes, it's not just your political views, it's what part of the country you live in, it's what your faith is and your relationship to to. To God, it's, uh, you know, your relationship, your whole sense of, of government. And so that, that there's no room for any compromise at all. And, and that as much as people are driven by their support for their tribe, they're even driven even more by their opposition and hatred of the other tribe and fear that the other tribe is going to get in, into power. And, you know, it just seems like a completely dysfunctional situation to ever have reasonable conversations and get anything accomplished, in addition to which I think the whole gerrymandering and the fact that probably 90% or 80% of the districts in the House are safely one party or the other. So the only thing you ever have to worry about is that you're going to get primary by somebody even further to the extreme. So there's, right. no, there's no incentive whatsoever to make, it, to make compromises. You're only going to get hurt if you actually try to, to split the loaf. I, I am going to, uh, I'm going to, because I could talk about this for a very long time, but my listeners have heard me talk about this for a very long time. So I'm going to hand it over to the, the audience. Uh, first, a couple questions about the book. Um, Simon Alley, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, asks an interesting question. What do you think of the theory often proposed by some that the bomb was also dropped to scare the Soviets? Well, we talk about that um, in, in the book, and that really became an increasing um, line of thought as the Cold War burgeoned in the late 50s and 60s. There were a, a number of, of, um, of historians and social scientists who said that this really wasn't, the Japanese were already defeated, and that this was to, to scare Stalin. I have to tell you, um, researching the history, it, it, it doesn't seem to be the case because in fact, uh, when Truman gets to Potsdam, he has only one thing he really wants. And the second or third day he's there, Stalin shows up late, he doesn't show up the first day. His Stalin comes in and in the very first meeting he says, we'll be in the war in August. They had promised, uh, 
Roosevelt in, at Yalta, Stalin had promised Roosevelt that within three months of the Japanese surrender, that he would, uh, the Russians would get into the war against the Japanese. After the Germans. Uh, and the German surrender, I'm sorry, yes. And and so that's May 8th, now it's August 8th, so it, it about almost exactly at that time, the Rus- Russians get in, but but Dirk, uh, Truman was thrilled that Stalin agreed to get in, so he, it seemed like he wanted the Japanese in the fight, because at that point, as he, he didn't know for sure he was even going to drop the bomb. I just see no indication at all that that was a, main, a major factor in his, in his thinking. Yeah, and, and you read Truman's diary, which presumably would have some mention of these things, right? Um, no, exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, in fact, in his diary, celebrates the fact that Stalin has said he's going to get in and that that will, because again, he doesn't know when he first gets to Potsdam that, the, uh, that they're not going to have to invade and end the war in a conventional way. Um, Ryan Hooper asks, what can journalism schools and media institutions do to create tough, fair, and objective journalists like yourself? <laughs> God, God bless, would you say his name is Ryan? Ryan Hooper, yeah. Ryan, God bless you. And, and uh, <laughs> I didn't write that. <laughs> no, it's an interesting thing. Um, I get, I'm just going to be open and honest about that. I get praised a lot these days. People come up to me well, I, not anymore because nobody comes up to each other anymore since March. But before the COVID, uh, people would come up to me and say, you know, thank you for being fair and thank you for treating both sides equally. And, you know, I like getting praised as much as the next person, but I actually find it very depressing mm-hmm. because I've, I've been in this business 50 years. I started at the, at the Boston Globe in 1969 went into television in 73. And, you know, being fair, being accurate, being, being even-handed was what kept you from getting fired. That was, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, you got praised for the, you got a great story, you wrote it well, when I got on TV, that you broadcast, you did a good interview. But fairness was just sort of the lowest common denominator. And now I, I, I agree with Ryan. I think it's become kind of special. And, and rare. And, you know, I'm, I've given a few speeches like a, at the museum and a couple of uh, First Amendment groups. And on the one hand, I say that I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very disturbed by Trump and his anti-media campaign and the, you know, the, the fake news is the enemy of the American people. I, I, I think that's very disturbing. On the other hand, I think that, you know, I, as I say, sometimes, you know, even a hot... <clears throat> Even a hypochondriac can get sick sometimes. And, you know, the fact is there is a lot of bias against Trump in the media. And I think a lot of people, and I don't think it started with Trump. I think it was sure. Bill Burr, but I think it's it's on steroids now, uh, have have take off after Trump and have become advocates against Trump. And that's wrong. You know, it's a, just as wrong as it's a, a wrong to be an advocate for Trump if you're a reporter. It's, an, it's wrong to be an advocate against him. You know, our job is to, to, to play it straight. And, and you know, I had uh, a spokesperson for the Trump campaign and a spokesperson for the Biden campaign on the show on Sunday. And I went after both of them. And, you know, that's, that's what I think you're supposed to do. Um, well, the president disagrees with you there. Uh, he doesn't think you're supposed to do that. Uh, he thinks, you know, that Fox, I mean, he says so. I'm not putting words in his mouth. He says that you know, Fox is showing some kind of disloyalty by when people like you ask tough questions on both sides. I mean, it's interesting. I honestly, I mean, I followed your career for a long time, obviously, but, you know, we're not super close. We've been on your show. I'm honored to be, be on it. But I honestly have no idea whether you're conservative or liberal. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I think you have more tolerance for conservatives than some people in your profession because... Just you, you have to, to be able to see the other person's point of view. And there's so few people left who even try to do that. But I don't, I, I don't know what your politics are. And there are just precious few journalists sort of in your, at your stature doing what you do where that's a mystery. You know, most of the, and I, I, in some ways I think the, the problem in MSNBC and places like that is worse because at least at Fox, the 
people who do the news try to just be news people. And there's a, there's a wall there. At MSNBC, I see anchors, including some friends of mine. I'm not trying to denounce anybody, but, you know, uh, Andrew Mitchell or Chuck Todd, they will go from opining to reporting without ever changing their hat or their costume several times over the hour. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people who are angry about media bias, they see that and they say, how come they get to do that? And our team isn't doing that. And my answer to that is, they shouldn't be doing that either, but that's that's neither here nor there. You can respond to that or just yeah, let no, that sail over the plate. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, you would say, what am I? I think, and this is probably in my DNA from my father, I'm a contrarian. I, I you know, one of the things that I do when I'll do an interview, and I have a, a, a great researcher, I call her Chris's brain. Uh, she, you know, I, I will say to her, all right, help me on some issue. What, what's the best case for this? Or what's the best case against it? You know, and, you know, when I'm talking to the Biden person, I want to know, you know, what's the, I, I know they're going to make the case for something. What's the best case against it? And conversely, when I'm preparing for uh, the, the Trump person, campaign person, I'm doing exactly the same. You know, I don't know, to me, it's sort of like, this is going to sound odd, it's like a plumber. I mean, when you go to somebody's house and you're a plumber, you fix the leak. You don't, you know, you don't sit there and, gee, well, let me check and see, decide how, whether I like their decoration or not. And to me, it's, you know, that sort of a level of professionalism. I've figured there, whatever side they are on, are going to make their case. So I'm going to test them. I'm going to, you know, try to get them to react and, um, and, and, think and, and respond in real time, get them off their talking point. So it's more, it's just a, a level of, of, of professionalism and, and, and technique. It's not, you know, I, I, I just don't think of it. And I, I never think of it in terms of, do I have opinions? Absolutely. Do I vote? Yes. And I think people who don't vote, uh, there used to be a, an editor of the uh, Washington Post, Len Downey, who refused to vote because he said that, you know, it would put thoughts or, or opinions into his head. It's ridiculous. You know, it's a, you're a professional. You go in yeah. and you do your job. And, and my job is to test the other, you know, whoever it is I'm interviewing. So uh, we got a couple questions that overlap. One was what kind of research do you ahead of it? Do you do ahead of interviews? Um, and how do you keep your personal perspective out of the way to ask tough questions? I think you kind of answered that. That was from Heidi. And then Josh asked, what have you learned about asking a question that, ensures you get an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, I wish I, I I wish I could because people, I I will say this, and and this is, you know, people often ask me, um, what'd you learn from your dad? And, and, you know, as if, how do you put your, your shoulder when you're doing an, or, you know, how do you, what's your facial gestures? What, what he really taught me is, is preparation. And, you know, and the value of preparation. The fact is, I'm going to be interviewing the secretary of state or, or a foreign leader or, you know, the head of a committee. They know more about a subject than I, than I do. The only advantage I've got is I know what I'm going to ask. So I don't have to know everything. I just have to know a lot about the specific subjects I'm going to ask in that 10 or 15 minutes. And one of the things that I find that people do is... They, they'll repeat the answer. So if you ask them something, they're likely to give the same answer over and over. So mm-hmm. it's not just that I want to know enough about the subject. I want to know what their answer is. And then, you know, and I, not to be foolish about it, but, um, you know, oftentimes it's an answer that, that has a weakness in it or is inaccurate or something. I interviewed Sarah Huckabee Sanders once, and it was at a point when I think the president was trying to do the travel ban and they were saying over and over again of something, uh, I forget the specific statistic, which is why it means I probably shouldn't have brought it up, that 90% of people or whatever that, you know, so many of them came through, but it turned out that they were coming through, I, I, you know, come across borders. And I, but it turned out that the vast majority came through airports and that building the wall wouldn't have a difference. And, and so I caught her, she said, and she said exactly what she'd said a bunch of times before, and it was demonstrably inaccurate, and it had actually been fact-checked before. 
but she repeated it and then I caught her on it and then she stopped using it. Well, the point is, you know, if you've done your research, you're much more likely to be get to get an honest answer than if you just let them do their talking points. Um, so. But having said that, they often give you their talking points and you can't get them to get off their line anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the rules, right, is you get to ask any question you want and they get to answer it any way they want um, within within reason. Look, it's a cliche to say these are trying times or unusual times, but it's also true that these are trying times and unusual times. And one of the things a lot of us are trying to do is save money. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance or on homeowner's insurance? Now's the time to check out Gabby and see how getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link in your current insurance account and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did. It was very useful. Um, you can go there. It's sort of like a you know, like a kayak or one of these things where you can comparison shop. Um, and I'm, I understand that there are other places that let you do this, but these guys, they don't follow you around the web. They keep your, they, they protect your privacy. Um, and you can see where, um, you know, you could make, have savings around, or you can just have the peace of mind of knowing that you're getting a really good deal as it is, which is one of the things I discovered. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. And if they can't find you savings, they'll just let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And they'll never sell your info, info so you don't get any annoying spam or robocalls. You won't have ads following you around all over the place. It's totally free to check out your rate, and there's no obligation. Just take two minutes right now, or maybe when this podcast is over, to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com slash Remnant, not dingo, remnant. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. Gabby dot com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is your promo code. So John Daly asks, says, Chris, you're one of the few major news media figures who isn't on Twitter or any social platform, I think. Do you feel that choice has been beneficial to you as a journalist? And do you think other journalists have made a mistake in regard to their professional credibility by engaging so often on social media? Um, one, John, I'm old. So, <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I will say that as you get older, you find that there are just sort of a limits to how much technology you want to take on. And I sometimes think to myself, I really don't want there to be some big new technological thing that I have to either embrace or reject. But, you know, I've, I've gotten better at it. And think I, I'm doing things now in the course of this three, four month lockdown that I would have been totally beyond me. Like Zoom. I had never Zoomed in my life. I'm quite proud of the fact that I'm quite proficient in Zoom now. We um, were terrified. Just so you know, we got an email from your, uh, one of your assistants or your, you know, one of, one of your staff saying, oh, Chris is going to handle this on his own tonight. <laughs> and a feeling of cold panic ran across our group. It was going to be the Jonah Goldberg hour. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, at a certain point, um, I, you know, I, I had started to go on Twitter and I even signed up for it. You know, I mean, I logged in and I found a name and Chris Wallace had been taken. So then it was Chris Wallace, 10, 1, 12, 3, Chris Wallace, 243. <laughs> anyway, I finally got a name. and. Um, and and, and oh, I was going to do it. And then I started reading tweets. And I don't know, it just seemed that there are so many, I, there are a variety of respo responses. One, I owe you my best job on the air or in a book, like Countdown 1945, extraordinary story. But, uh, but I don't owe you what I had for breakfast. I don't know, owe you what I'm thinking about. So I thought there's so much stuff that's on here that's crap that I don't want and then I started seeing people get older and start giving their opinions. And I thought, well, I try to hide my opinions on, you know, you know, when I'm on the air, why do I want to start giving you my yeah. opinions here? 
And then I guess I thought, you know, there were so many ways that that I I, I could blow up my career. Why do I want to have one more? And I've seen people, you know, wreck themselves on this thing. So I, I, the one thing I regret is that I don't even follow it. So on, I, you know, sometimes there is interesting stuff that people say, and and uh, um, that I miss. But in terms of doing it myself, no, that's fine. Well, I'm, you know, you like my I don't, wife. I don't lack, let me just say, I don't sit up at night thinking, God, I wish there were more ways I could share my views with the American public. <laughs> I, really, I really do that. You do that, but yeah. I don't want to do that. I. Uh... You know, my, my wife lurks. She doesn't tweet. Uh, A.B. Stoddard lurks but doesn't tweet. You, know, you set up an account, and that way you can at least, at least look at stuff. But I, I should say, um, I think you probably have the healthier attitude in part because the last time I was on Fox News Sunday, I uh, had very harsh words for Kaylee McEnany and the things that she had said. Yes, and, you and I both. Yes, and um, uh, Twitter became for about a week pretty much like the Ark of the Covenant at the end of the Indiana Jones movie for me. His face melting horror, people attacked me, people uh, declared open war on me, all these kinds of things. And- uh, Do you realize how much much happier I was for that week? Because it's funny, (laughs) somebody said to me, you're trending on Twitter. And first they had to explain to me what trending on Twitter meant. And then I said, well, is it good or is it bad? And they said, it's not so good. And I thought, well, <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to see all that stuff. Yeah. No, I, look, it's, and, and in some ways it's very healthy because I think, look, I mean, the democratic party, the media, the Republican party, lots of journalists, they think Twitter increasingly is the real world. And it, it's, 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 it's part of the world that we live in, but it is, not reflective of reality in a certain way. And it becomes very distorting to a lot of people. Um, so I just want to say thank you very much because you've not let yourself get distorted by all the craziness that's out there. And um, you're very on brand for the dispatch. Uh, so we were delighted to have you here. And I, I don't want to say one more time, it really is a great book. Um, I had worries that, uh, oh, and I wanted to ask aud- the audience something. Um, Oh, yes. So you, we talked about this before, yeah. and I really would appreciate it. Go ahead. Sure. So you, you, you said I'm not revealing anything. That one of the things that you found attractive about this countdown uh, uh, formulation was that it would lend itself to future books, sort of like Brett's, you know, three days concept and all of that. And you know, when the book, when I first heard about the book, I, I, I worried that it was not so much Brett, but me, and I couldn't see you doing Bill O'Reilly. It wasn't going to be killing FDR or killing Nagasaki, but um, it actually, it's a great book and it works. And I was trying to, I've been thinking about what would be other great historical moments that were on a specific sort of shot clock that would lend themselves to this. And I thought it'd actually be a great question to leave for our audience to do, maybe not in the chat room here, but do it at the page for this when it comes out as a podcast. And I'll send Chris uh, uh, some of your suggestions because we got a lot of history buffs in our audience and you know maybe they'll come up with yeah, let me can i just say one thing sure if you give me the idea for my next next book i'm now immediately i'm saying that uh, there will be no intellectual property you are <laughs> giving it a gift you ain't getting a dime of it so just <laughs> do it out of the goodness of your heart fair uh, and if 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 we can sort of borrow the language from the covid-19 tulsa rally Disclaimer to say by signing this, I agree to give up this intellectual property. Exactly. When they, when they give it in. Anyway, so Chris Wallace, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And let me just uh, say back, um, you know, I, I read a few newsletters in the morning, and the last thing I thought I needed was a new newsletter. But the dispatch is can't miss. It, and I'm serious. It's uh, I think it's well written. It's smarter than the others, uh, and it's a great companion because. You, know, you get a lot of the what happened or what's in the headline in the paper, and here you get a really smart take on what does it mean. I, we really appreciate it. That means a lot to us, and it'll mean a lot to the uh, to the youngins who we keep in the dark and handcuffed to the radiator when they work on this thing <laughs> night and day. So that's Working great. On the treadmill. Okay, so uh, you know. The episodes, the conversation's been over for almost 24 hours now, but uh, I still got to say goodbye to you guys. Um, 
I'm quite serious about this idea of uh, um, of coming up with other things that would lend themselves to a countdown. I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of conversation to have at the dispatch. And we have lots of great comments. You know, our, uh, one of the best things about the dispatch is the comment section. And if you're a paid member, you get to participate in all of that. Um, so among the history buffs out there, I mean, it seems to me like one of the obvious ones would be various space launches and that kind of thing. But, you know, what are some other ones? I, I personally would love to know some medieval ones. Um, I kind of doubt that Chris Wallace wants to write about the countdown at the gates of Vienna. But I think that would be a fascinating book if you could pull it off. Uh, so anyway, I want to thank Chris Wallace for, for coming on. I want to thank him for his kind words about the dispatch. And I want to thank all of you guys for uh, listening and for your support. Your word of mouth matters a great deal. And your support is everything to us. So from everybody here, thanks very much. And I'll see you next time. Sure.